Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. This is what I call Christmas chaos. I remember a few years ago during Black Friday, there were like, we see them every year, you know what I mean? The fights that happen at the front door of the store, people coming in, little old ladies who are sweet 364 days out of the year are doing wrestling moves against other people in order to get a TV that's 50% off. I understand it. I just bought one. I know what it's like to get a good deal. This year, in spite of potential recession of inflationary numbers, they've had a record Black Friday selling spree. So there is no doubt that our desire here in the U.S. and the Western world to accrue more and to get more at everything at a wonderful deal is still alive and well in the United States. Today, this week, I was speaking to someone who is basically in an absolute panic over getting the perfect gift for their family, not because they loved them so much and they wanted to share their heart with them about who they were, but because of what might be said in response to a gift not being good enough. And we all sort of fall into this, don't we? The movie releases that take advantage of everyone's festive season of watching something together as a family, Christmas football. I'm not hating. I'm just saying the Savior of the world is commemorated on this day and his birth for our salvation, and we celebrate by clunking heads together and hoping that we hurt the other team. Let's not forget movies like Violent Christmas. Violent Christmas gives you a little glimpse of the world that we dwell in and we ourselves partake in from time to time. I mean, it's so easy to fall into the current of the culture and be herded, yes, it's the word, herded, along during a time meant to commemorate the one who saves sinners from the love of the very things that we celebrate during this time. Christians do this too. I do this too. It's like we live and breathe a vapor, an air, a gas that is this cultural norm. There's not this stark separation where we look at, well, the world is over there and we're over here. At least we shouldn't look like that because if you're honest with yourself, you realize that we fall into it often and we fall into it far too much. And after it all, it all feels so natural. This is because we live in a broken system that tells us that nothing is wrong. Well, maybe it'll tell us that there's something wrong, but I guarantee this book, this gadget, or this app will make everything right. Oh, and it's only $19.95 plus $50 shipping and handling. You know, they put that thing in there now. Today we're going to discuss the world, the way of the world. Now, not the earth itself, not the globe that floats in this big black ethereal space, but the world more like the way of the world. 
More specifically, the love of the way of the world and how this is a problem for us. When we love the world or the things of the world, a couple of things happen. It's important for us to know this. First, we sin against God. We sin against God. This is our primary and most singular aim in life is to live a life that honors and glorifies God. And we fail to do that when we live and focus on the world, and we'll learn about that. We lose sight of the eternal, all of our issues, our circumstances, the drama that we have in our lives becomes bigger and bigger and bigger because we see all of the consequences, the what-ifs, the could-bes, the mights, instead of seeing in the end, the eternal perspective, God's perspective. Perhaps we contribute to the delusion. We just fall right in line with the current of the world. And we blind ourselves to the truth because it's so much easier than to actually push against the current and to live for the Lord. And we will inevitably suffer the consequences of this. God talks about reaping what we sow. If we sow in this world, if we sow to the things of this world, all we're going to reap is more things of this world. And if you haven't noticed, the things of this world are broken and faulty and never perfect. And they never deliver the way that they always promise to. They always fail. Today, we're in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Apostle John is writing to a church, possibly the Ephesian church, who is falling into problems with false teachers. False teachers are coming. And these teachers taught and lived a certain way that John doesn't come out and say it specifically, but you can see what he's guarding and cautioning them against. The believers there at the church, and it gives us a glimpse of what's actually going on. First is they taught just outright error about who God is, about who Jesus was. Second, they minimized or eliminated the sin in their own life. They actually claimed that it was possible to live a sinless life. And this is in the book of John where you hear if anyone says that they have no sin, they deceive themselves. So they taught that it was possible to be sinless. I don't know how this next part coincides with that, but they treated other people poorly. So they claimed they had no sin, treated those around them in an unchristianly or unchristian-like manner. And to top it all off, they claim to be empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to consider your own life. Because <laughs> when I read this, and I, I had to, God convicted me on this. And I think he wants you to really take a look at this in your own life. First, is they taught error? Are there things that you believe that just are not true? And do you perpetuate them in the system? Do you hear it from the system and then pass it on? The famous share button. I know when I'm on social media and I hear something cool, I hit share a lot. I don't necessarily biblically vet every single thing or think about the consequences, the implications. Or am I feeding the system or perpetuating a lie? This is what they did. They minimized or eliminated, eliminated the own sin in their life. They justified, I didn't do anything wrong. Or I'm better than I think I am. Or sin is not that bad. That might be our biggest threat. Sin is not that bad. They treated other Christians poorly. Some of you know that I'm not perfect. <laughs> and I know that some of you aren't perfect. We treat each other poorly from time to time. And then to top it all off, they claim to be empowered by the Spirit of God, which hopefully is all of our claim. All of our claim. So while this book was written about false teachers 2,000 years ago, there are lessons for us here in how we view the world. Are we viewing the world like these false teachers did? Are we viewing the world in this way? And how and what are the repercussions of that? 
Sometimes a text, when you read it, it just all falls into a sermon form. This is one of those texts. In this text, we're going to see John making a thesis statement and giving three reasons why it is true. All I had to do was fill in a few illustrations. Thank you, John. Made it very easy for me today. So let's turn to verse 15 and take a look and see what our thesis statement is for today. 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Pretty flat out. That is our thesis statement. The question is, is what is the world? The word here used for word is the word cosmos. We see it in the phrase cosmology or cosmonaut, meaning the universe, the physical universe. Well, sometimes what happens with words is they get used in one way in the beginning of their language use, and then they get translated or changed or things get attached to it and it means something else. And this is one of those cases. God, through John, is not saying, do not hate the globe that is suspended in space. Do not hate the physical creation. In fact, that physical creation is a gift from the creator. We're part of that physical creation. What he's saying is, is do not love the way of the world. The world here, cosmos, means the structure, order, and priorities of sinful humanity, both individually and collectively. I wanted to say something like the world order, new world, but that's creepy. That makes me all creeped out. But you know what I'm saying. It's the way of the world. It's kind of the space that we live, and it's all empowered and informed and motivated by sin. You might say, well, I don't believe that. Well, I challenge you to watch commercials on TV for about five minutes. And when you're watching a commercial on TV, ask yourself, what are they trying to get me to do? Clearly buy is part of it, but what are they using to entice me to make this purchase? What are they promising? Are they promising me a better life, an easier life? Are they promising me more beauty? Are they promising me joy? Pay attention to what it is and why they're trying to sell you what they're seeking to sell you. So that's one way, taking a look at advertising. Another way would be to look at the structures that we live, governments, the way that we set things up in order to make some people have an advantage. I think that's real, and I think it's important that we address that. Look at the way that we organize and look at those in Hollywood. Look how Hollywood is organized. Look at how we look to them as being arbiters of truth. Well, it doesn't matter what the preacher is saying from the pulpit, but as long as Brad Pitt advocates it, it must be okay. Now, I, I say it as a joke, but it's, we do this. We do this. And they tell us, I'm going to use my position of power in order to advocate for this, that, or other thing. This is all part of the way of the world and not God's way, which often is done quietly in the corner of a room in a still small voice. It can be difficult for us to see, though. We live in it. This is why we need Scripture. This is why we need to know what the truth is. I was talking to someone this week who started the depths of his anguish. He said, I don't know what is right or wrong. I don't know up from down. I have no, he didn't say it like this, but I have no frame of reference for what is truth. Where do I even start? What can I hold on to? And always go back to it in order to make my judgments about the rest of the things around me, the rest of my choices. 
This is what the Scripture and the revelation of the Scripture through God's Spirit teaches us to recognize. When we read the Word, we can say, oh, that's actually me. I'm doing this. That's why it's important that we're in the Bible frequently and often. John paints a stark contrast between the things of God. There's not a whole lot of gray. Don't love the world, things of the world. We'll go on to see what he says that means. It means that God's not in you. That's a pretty huge claim. And it's something that we have to wrestle with as individuals and as a church. So John gives us his thesis statement and goes on to give us three reasons. First reason, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. When I read that, it was like a dagger. I mean, I think we glance over this stuff. We gloss over it. But let's really let it hit. Let's really let it speak to our heart. The love of the world means that the love of the Father is not in us. It's a profound statement. You see, our love for God cannot be divided. We cannot love God and those things which are at enmity against him. Sort of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. It's the idea that how if we really loved God, if God was, were really the center of our all affection we have in our heart, but yet we love the things he hates. It doesn't seem to me and it doesn't seem to John that this jives. We live in two worlds. We become double agents. Here's another word, hypocrites. Hypocrites. Remember, the word hypocrite means one who is a play actor, one who wears a mask. We live one way in the world, but really our heart wants another, and that's not sustainable. When things get hard, when we're stressed, when we're placed in a position, that mask comes off, and the true intent comes out. For many of us, when we live in this world, we try to live a better life. What we're actually doing is just putting a mask on. We're not asking God to go deep and to change us in our personality to change who we are. We say, Lord, make me not do this. I don't want to act like this. What we should be asking is, Lord, completely change who I am. Revolutionize me. Those areas of my heart that continue to move me, those loves for things in the world that I continue to show again and again, change me. You have to do it. I don't know about you, but I tried a long time to change who I was. Can't do it. Impossible. Why? I don't know. Is it our DNA that speaks to us? Is it when we were young, the formative years, things got so deeply ingrained that their neurons are connected in a certain way? Is it that our sin is so addictive that when we do it, it just drives us deeper and deeper for more, more, more? Whatever it is, all I know And I know God knows because he teaches it that only he can change who you are. Only he can change what you really love. And it's for this reason that we must cry out to him to focus our affections in any way possible towards him and ask him to change who we are. For us, there is no refuge from the implications of this line. Love of the world, father not in him. When we were saved, God's Spirit took up residence in our heart. When we cry out to God in faith, the Scripture tells us that God's Holy Spirit opens up our eyes, dwells in our hearts, declares us forgiven. This is called the moment of regeneration. It means to be made new again. 
When we have the Spirit living within us, certain things happen. First, we're released from the bondage of sin that made it impossible to not sin. Hear me. It doesn't mean it makes it easy (laughs) to not sin. It doesn't mean it makes it simple to not sin. It makes it possible. I remember sitting in a jail cell and having a book that someone gave me called Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. And opening this book and thinking, I don't know what this guy's going to tell me. I've heard of him, heard about it in church a few times as a kid, read about him in school a few times, and I opened it up and I began to read. And what Luther goes on to describe is, is that we are born in a state with our will in bondage. And as I read it on and on, I suddenly began to resonate with the truth in this book and I realized, well, maybe that's why I can't stop doing what I'm doing. I wanted all this freedom in the world to do whatever I want, but in the end, true freedom is the ability to say no and to not do the things that I don't want to do, yet here I was, again and again. And I had, and I told you guys the story, I had a green flickering fluorescent light in a jail cell to remind me again and again and again that I was wrong, (laughs) that I was not free. Not only does the Spirit release us from bondage, but the Spirit changes our affections from focus on the things of this world to the things on the Father. The Spirit pours love for God and from God into our heart. Remember why John is writing. He's giving direction to the church. They're struggling with false teachers. You see, they said one thing, these teachers, and lived another. Could this be us? So when we are loving the things of the world, we have to ask ourselves that terrifying question. Am I really a child of God? Have I really taken that step of faith where I have given God carte blanche? (laughs) I surrender. The terms of the surrender, God, that's on you. You write the terms. I bring no reservations with me. You have to do it. You tell me what you want. My whole life and everything is you. So either we don't have renewed hearts or we have and we're intentionally pushing the spirit down and saying no. I remember sometimes, I mean, we all do this. It's just like we're tempted to say something. Someone does something, oh, we want to say it. We want, there's a statement we want to make. And I hear the Lord saying, just let it go, it's fine. And I'm like, get out of here, you. I know what I'm doing, I know what I want to say, and I say it, and then I'm surprised when the consequences are bad. (laughs) When it doesn't land in the heart of the other person the way it was supposed to land. You know, we can do that. We can quench the Spirit's movement in our life. Paul warns us about it. Part of having our eyes fixed on God and loving God over the things of this world is saying, God, whatever you want. Tell me what's next. I'll do whatever it is. You see, there's a battle going inside of each of us. Being saved does not end that battle. In many ways, it intensifies it. Before we were a child of God, we just did our own thing, walked along the way of the world. Satan didn't have to do anything with us. We can get in trouble on our own. But as soon as we declare, no, I'm with him. (laughs) The guy on the cross, that's my guy. We all get a target on our back, and the real battle begins. And we have to be real about that. We have to recognize that there's a battle going on between us and that we do not have the power in ourselves to fight it. It has to be God. 
little segue here, or a little foray off into some historical theology. There was a man named Augustine of Hippo. He was the bishop of Hippo. This was in North Africa. This is the fourth century. And he, among many things that he did, one of the big things that he did is that he argued and debated against another man named Pelagius. Pelagius said that it was possible to live life from day one perfectly. That God, in his grace, gave us the ability from day one to choose to not sin. And that we, and he was very hard on sinners, including himself. So it wasn't a self-righteous sort of piece in the sense that and I've got it figured out and you guys can do it too. He understood he, were, he was a sinner. But he got it wrong. He said, we were not born, he said, we were not born with any type of issue in our heart. We were not born with what we call original sin. We have the ability from day one. And Augustine, through writing again and again, and then finally in the Council of Carthage, it came out that this Pelagianism, this way of teaching that Pelagius taught was a heresy. And Augustine came out. Augustine talk, or came out as sort of the, the winner, I guess. God was the winner. Let's put it that way. God was the winner. The Bible was the winner. But he talks about four ways, four aspects of who we are as human beings, four stages, let's say, of humanity. There's a little Latin in here. Don't gloss your eyes over. I think this is important to understand. Okay, the first one, he says, is passe peccare. This is like Adam and Eve. This means it's possible to sin. This means Adam and Eve are in the garden. God says you can do whatever you want, just don't eat of that tree. In that moment, they were sinless. And it was possible, though, for them to sin clearly because they chose to. Okay, passe peccare. The next one would be non passe, non peccare. This is us prior to salvation. We're born with a sin nature that's in bondage. We can't choose to not do the things that we want to do, certainly not with any kind of consistency, maybe one-offs here and there. But in the end, you must agree there's something broken inside of us. And despite our best efforts and intentions, we can't overcome it. We can't overcome it. But when we accept the Lord, we ask Jesus to take control of our life and the Spirit comes into our heart, we change from one stage of being impossible to not sin to a stage where now it is possible to not sin. Now that we have the Spirit living within us, we have the power that we did not have while we were in our bondage. And this makes a huge target on our back. We are targeted people. In the world, the system, the spiritual realities that are sort of behind the scenes all seek to pull us away from the truth away from the Lord, which is hard. Isn't it hard? Don't you just want to stop sometimes? I do. But something in me, keeps that dynamo keeps going, keeps going. That's that spirit that lives in us and promises to be with us forever. Gladly, one day we'll be in a place called non passe non pacari. That means that we will never sin again. We will be perfected in our sinlessness and we will live forever in a state of bliss. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine what life is going to be like one day. When after this short period of 80 years of strife and trouble, we now get to live for a trillion without any of the garbage that we deal with here. Can you imagine? Like, that's my hope. It's like, oh, Lord Jesus, please take me now. I stay for your sake, okay? But I'm like, threaten me with a good time. For real. The way the world can look enticing to believers, it's easier in the short term to just fall in. It seems to provide pleasure and satisfaction, but it only leaves us more desperate 
and hungry for more, for the love and the fulfillment that we can only find in God, in Jesus. Like I said, we can reject it. So, first reason, love of the Father is not in him if we love the world. Second reason, for everything in the world. And he goes on to say the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but of the world. John's telling us we should only embrace that which comes from the Father. And even then, we need to open it, hold it with an open hand. For the way the world is rooted in lust and pride. We use that word a lot, lust. What does that actually mean? Well, lust is an inordinate desire or an out-of-proportion desire for something, for an object. So here he goes on to say lust of the flesh. That means an inordinate desire for physical gratification. Human appetites were given by God. I think Christians throughout the years have sometimes gotten that messed up. They sought to eliminate human appetites or they've sought to deny human appetites. And again, it's like asking a leopard to you know, not have spots. Where this is, We were made this way. So when we try to stuff it down and we say, don't address those human appetites, ignore those human appetites, push them down, they come out like lions because we cannot sustain them. It's who we are. The issue is, is how are we utilizing them or how is sin motivating them in our lives? We take a good thing given by God and twist it for our own selfish gain. Sex is good. Sex in marriage is amazing and a gift of God. Our perverted hearts say, well, if this is great, think about what this would be like. Consequenceless sex. With whomever I choose, whenever I choose, we live in an instantaneous culture. The way of the world is instant. Instant. Talked to a young man last week, told me he started looking at pornography at six years old. Because all it takes is a click and a question. We live in a world that is instantaneous. Have it now. No wait. Lust of the eyes, the inordinate desire to possess that's that which we lay our gaze of our eyes or our hearts on. So beauty, riches, covetousness. We look at other people's stuff. I drive through Elmhurst all the time. Now, you guys know my house. I'm blessed. God gave me an amazing house. I am so blessed that God did this for me. I'm not going to lie, though. I drive through. I'm like, man, I wish I lived there. And then I get my gas bill, and I'm like, well, I'm glad I don't. But anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> but man, I wish I lived there. Or that person's got that big, beautiful black SUV. And they're wearing the name brand puffy jacket and they got the Starbucks cup and the little glass sunglasses with the little mark on the corner that I talk about. You know what I mean? And they look like everything's so great. And I think, man, maybe I should do that instead of being a pastor. Could you imagine what kind of win that would be for the kingdom of darkness? But we all succumb to this. We all are tempted with this. I mean, I have this ministry and this calling of God to remind me day and again, this is where you belong. This is what you do. But what about you guys who don't have that? What about you guys who could do any career you want? Could be any way you want. Could dress any way you want. It's hard. That which is intended to point us back to God, his goodness, the gifts that he has given us, the beautiful people that we see and say, wow, that person's a beautiful person. Did you know when we look at a beautiful person, it's intended to point to the beauty of God, 
It's intended to say, wow, God is amazing. Wow, God. When we look at a beautiful landscape, we say, wow, God, you're amazing. The beauty is intended to point us to God. Instead, we twist it. Our sinful hearts make it idols. And finally, the pride of life. This pride here is more than just like, well, I'm proud of my kids or I'm proud of myself for doing this thing. This is more than self-satisfaction. This is boasting. The word here in Greek talks about boasting. And here the word life, so the pride of life, the word life here, the most common use for life in the Greek Testament word for life is the word zoe. We get zoe. We get the name zoe from it today. But the word used here is bios or bios. Okay, bios. This word doesn't just mean like a life force right? This means to the way, the pattern, or the process of life. So it's like Zoe says it's good to be alive. That means it's good to be awake, conscious, that kind of life. But Bio says life is hard. Life is hard. And this is what they're saying, the pride of life. This is the inordinate desire to boast, either inwardly to ourselves or outwardly to others, of one's own world of achievements and possessions and competence that supposedly obtained it all. My kingdom is the pride of life. Toys. Open up the garage, got all the toys sitting there. These types of shoes. I only shop at this store. Only the best for me and my family. When we think about it and we boast about it in our heart of how we're organizing the world around us, our own world, it's evidence of the pride of life in our desire to claim that we've done it all. So because we live in this world, because it's so blinding, we're living in the delusion sometimes, right? I know I'm speaking, I know it's hitting. I know Spirit is telling you that there are areas of your life that are impacted by this. How do we know? How do we know if we're inordinately loving something? Well, day one, or number one, does God's word prohibit it? That's a, that will eliminate 90% of the things. What does God's word say about it? But I think there's some other ones for some gray areas. First, does the prospect of losing or not achieving the thing desired cause fear, trepidation, or anger? Does the prospect of losing or not achieving the thing desired cause fear, trepidation, or anger? I was speaking to someone this week. We talked about living for the Lord, being honest about who they are with the people in their family and in their sphere of influence. But they're afraid. They're afraid to do that for fear of rejection. I mean, this part is pretty standard. I mean, we all do this in some way. What they said was interesting. They said, you know, I grew up with no friends. No friends. And I grew up in a family that didn't treat me well. And it sort of felt normal. So I lived my life with no friends and really no family like that. And it was okay. Because it was just like, this was my world. But then I graduated high school and I went to college. And suddenly, I got friends. Suddenly, there are people now in my life who seem to care for me and love for me and want to be around me. And now that I have the thing that I didn't have before, I do not want to let it go. I don't. This happens in all areas of our life. Think about what it must be like to let go of something that you hold on so tightly. Is that an area that we are seeking to love something more, that we're loving more than loving God? Second, does fear, trepidation, or anger move you to look to God or manipulate and control your world to get what you want? I am 
the commensurate manager. If everyone just did what I wanted, everything would be easier and better for everybody. <laughs> just trust me. It's going to be fine. I know what's best. In my life, I just have this deep inner desire to make things the way I want to make them to get what I want to get. Now, imagine an entire church doing that. Welcome to the world. <laughs> now, imagine a whole country trying to do that. Welcome to the U.S. Everyone's seeking to fix, manage, and control everything that they can in order to dictate an outcome that best suits them. It's interesting how God talks so much about humility and counting others as better, as our, better than ourselves. It's because this is one of our innate things. Me, self, what I want. Finally, do we try to find ways to justify keeping or obtaining the object of our desire? This for, I mean, the heart's ability to justify behavior and thinking that it allows, it, it, behavior and thinking in a way that allows it to keep what it has is breathtaking. It is breathtaking how we can convince ourselves, right? That's why we need the word. This is why we need each other. We, the Lord's telling me, you know, this is one of my favorites. I hear it all the time. I don't hear it all the time. I've heard it several times. <laughs> I feel God's calling me to leave this woman and marry this one. God didn't say that. We need each other to say, you know what, I love you. God did not say that. <laughs> Wake up, kind of thing, <laughs> right? It's the point of church discipline. <laughs> Wake up. Because we will convince ourselves that what we want is the right thing. And we will believe our own lies. We will believe our own lies. In addiction circles, we call this part of the denial process. I say, you know what, all of you guys, we all have this. It's part of the way that we can get what we want and feel good about it in the process instead of recognizing that what it is that we're seeking to have is against God's will, and we can't see how it's going to be what's best for us in the moment. And so we again push things away and try to do it our way. Finally, third point, is verse 17. We should not love the world or the things of the world because the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The way of the world will not last I was in Germany and France this fall. We saw cathedrals, beautiful artwork, sculptures. You know, here in the United States, the oldest thing you're going to get is maybe 400 years, and you're lucky in one or two places in Virginia or Massachusetts. There, it's like people are living in houses in a row that are 400 years old. It's like they're, they're used stones that are built in houses that are modern today are stones that were used in houses a thousand years ago, like another brick. Everything's old. But in the end, it doesn't matter. All the people who built them are gone. Yeah, what they built might be there, but in the end, what is it? None of the churches are churches. They're museums owned by this city. They're just monuments. Look how great we are. Jesus, when he stood outside of the temple and the disciples were saying, look at this beautiful temple, the gold and how big it is. Jesus said, this temple ain't going to last. Now, one stone will be on top of each other. This temple's going to be doesn't matter. We think about our legacies and our memories. There's books, Christian books, written about creating a legacy. In the end, it's all going to go. It's all going to go. 
John here says, if you look, that basically doing God's will is absolutely contrary to the way of the world. It's always interesting to me, like if you just look at the world and you wrote a book, I'm going to write a story, and everything in the world I'm going to write opposite, like opposite day. You get pretty close to how we believe. (laughs) You get pretty close to what the Bible teaches. Because we live in a world that's really turned upside down. Everything's turned on its head by the father of lies. The overwhelming witness of God's word is that the way of God is life in the way of the world is death. I think about Psalm 1 when I say that. I think it's a beautiful psalm. I think it's something we should look at now. So let's do that. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who not walks in the counsel of the wicked. It means don't listen to people who don't know what they're talking about. Nor stands in the way of sinners. That means goes along with sinners and what they do. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Has an unbelieving heart. And sides with those who don't believe what we believe. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's more than just God's word, that's God himself. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The roots of that tree dive deep into the Lord, and the result is fruit. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. If you've ever seen kernels of wheat, they're covered in this skin on the outside called an integument. And they, they would rub it like this and the seed kernels would fall, but the light chaff, the extra, the garbage. The wicked are not so, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. They have no substance in them. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows that the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, the way, that's the way of the world will perish. And such were each of us before the Lord in his grace called us. So how do we love God and reject the way of the world? We recognize that God's way is better. We again make that decision each day, not my will, Lord, but your will. We have to know what God's way is by being in the scripture, by reading the Bible, by interacting with other believers who can encourage us and point us to the Lord. And to be honest, sometimes it just takes discernment and wisdom. That's why we need each other. What do you think about this? We seek insight and power in the Holy Spirit through prayer. We ask the Lord to reveal strongholds in our lives. Lord, what am I loving that you don't love? Maybe I'm not seeing it. We ask for the power to break them. In the power of the Spirit, resist the way of the world and trust to God to work in us. The world promises you this, but God says, trust me. We make the decision to trust him even when we don't see the outcome. Psalm 37.5 says, commit your way to the Lord. Live God's way. Trust God for his power in your life and he will act. All this to say, keep your eyes and your mind focused on what is above. We tend to fall in love with that which we sustain our gaze, upon which we sustain our gaze. We tend to fall in love with those we have deep intimacy and communication with. So talk to God more than you talk to the world. Think of God more than you think of the world. Look to God more than you look to the world. Earnestly desire to love God more than you do the world. Keep your gaze focused on him. So this week, Christmas week coming up, we're going to be into the chaos in no time. No time. I'm serious. Like I'm, I'm trying to suit up because I know it was like, I'm not going to lie. My family is probably watching at some point. But we had a family Christmas party on yesterday that got canceled. And Elaine and I were like, Yes! Oh man, I love my family, but for some reason, just the, there's like, there's wheat or 
We're a reproductive family, let's put it that way. There's kids and people everywhere. And we wasted our time and didn't do shopping early enough because we resisted the way of the world. No, I'm kidding. Um, When you're tempted to be carried away by the way of the world and the way of the world's Christmas, remember why we are celebrating and try to see the irony of the worldly Christmas spirit. Keep your eyes fixed on God and his son, your savior, and the power of the spirit. Celebrate the gifts that your father has given you, your family, your salvation, and the freedom Christ gives us to say no to the way of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. We thank you, Lord, for Christmas, for it is a, a remembrance, a commemoration, Lord. In fact, Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness and not making every day Christmas. Every day should be a reminder that you came. We're born of a woman to live, suffer, and die on our behalf so we could have forever and eternal relationship with you, starting here on earth and then forever in heaven. We pray, Lord, that this week you would keep our eyes and gaze focused upon you. Help us, Lord, to see you bigger and more beautiful and more shining and brilliant and scintillating than any light here on earth. We pray, Lord, that we would live this week in a manner that's worthy of you, in a manner that remembers what you did through your son, Jesus. Lord, as we're celebrating with our families, let us enjoy them knowing that they are gifts from you, for you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.